Welcome to a collaborative episode of From the Front Row and Share Public Health, two podcasts produced from the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I am Ian Bukta, a host and producer for From the Front Row, a podcast produced by University of Iowa College of Public Health students to share public health to provide conversations in public health with established and emerging leaders in public health. I am thrilled to be partnering with the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, Share Public Health, which connects you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series of interviews with young public health leaders in our region. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much for coming and sitting down with us today. Do you want to just introduce who you are, what you do, and... uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, so my name is Elizabeth, and I'm a public health statistician with the city of Kansas City, Missouri. And um, so I work for a local city health department. And uh, the vast majority of what I do in my job is, is more practicing social epidemiology. So I really spend a lot of time thinking about how somebody's social context impacts their health. Um, I do a lot of reading and writing um, and statistical analysis regarding the impacts of racism and poverty and geography in particular because those are huge issues within Kansas City and how that impacts health. And then I do a lot of other things here and there. I do some policy work. Um, I work with our local safety net providers because they receive a portion of city tax dollars to provide uninsured care. Um, and then there's always that 10% duties, other duties as a sign. So I, I like to think of myself as a public health hustler within Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, that's awesome. I like that description at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And uh, if you don't mind, um, you were recently honored with being on the 40 Under 40 by the DeBeaumont Foundation. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Sure, I would love to. Um, the 40 Under 40 in Public Health is an initiative by the DeBeaumont Foundation to really elevate um, the uh, to elevate public health nas- at the national level. There are a lot of 40 Under 40 lists for other specific professions, um, notably like medicine and nursing and other aspects of healthcare or in business, but there's not really anything that focuses on our field. And so the DeBeaumont Foundation thought, you know, decided that they should elevate public health in this way and honor emerging emerging leaders. And I'm just really honored and can hardly believe that I'm a part of this list. It's full of movers and shakers and some really innovative thinkers, people with amazing backgrounds, um, and I am just so excited to be a part of this list and to get to know my fellow honorees. It's been quite a thrill. Yeah, well, congratulations on that, and thanks again for taking some time. I'm sure you have quite a few media requests, so thank you for taking ours. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much for coming and sitting down with us today. Uh, We've got a couple questions for you. Uh, The first is we really are interested in how does systems thinking inform your work? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. I actually had to Google that because I've never used the term systems thinking. Um, So for, for the people who are listening who might also need to Google systems thinking, 
um, my interpretation of it, and Ian, please correct me if you're wrong, is, is just taking an approach where you're looking at an entire um, organization and how different parts work together, or an entire community and how different parts work together, where versus focusing on just one component and or one individual. Is that kind of is that what you are getting at when you're talking about systems thinking? Yeah, yeah, really deconstructing the whole thing as you go. Sure, yeah. So um, that's something that I think um, we are kind of innately taught in public health, especially those of us who are formally trained in public health. We're taught to, we're taught to look at things at a community level. Um, and that's just, I mean, that's really critical to the fundamental nature of our business, right? We, we like helping individuals. That's a really feel good feeling, but that's more of a transactional approach, right? It's helping one person at one particular point in their life. That's not going to, sometimes it does result in a, a meaningful change that does change their lives for as long as they live. Um, but a lot of times it helps them out in that one moment, but it doesn't really give them a fundamental change that really helps improve their life for good. Um, and when we take a public health approach or that community level approach, we're looking at the different ways that that community can change. So you're changing the lives of all of those individuals. So it's more of a transformational approach. Um, and, and that is really kind of what systems thinking is, is all based on, right? So for me, it's just a, a fundamental part of my everyday job. It's really interesting to hear uh, your perspective on that as a public health practitioner. What is one thing that you would tell students when they start thinking about systems thinking and when they hear it in a classroom and they're not sure what it, what it all will do in their career? What would you tell them? Like, why is it so important? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that when we're in school, we think, how am I ever going to possibly use that? And sometimes we're right, um, right? For example, like that math equation where it's like the bumblebee is traveling between two trains and like how long is the bumblebee travel before the trains collide or whatever. I don't know, I've never used that. I'm a statistician and I've never used that type of math in my career. So that was a valid question when I, when I was in seventh grade. Um, but I think there are a lot of things where we learn we learn this theory a lot of times and that that doesn't isn't necessarily what we use in public health practice but having that knowledge base it's something that just almost like gets in the back of your mind and when you don't even realize that you're going to pull that up um, especially when you're when you're talking about systems thinking which we have a lot of jargon in public health um, that I that I maybe for another conversation we could talk about how we should not use jargon all the time. Um, but when we're talking about just that community approach, that's really really important for for what happens in public health. I would say particularly if you're you know when you're in class and you're learning about these things, a lot of times you're being taught the theory and kind of the the basis for why these things are critical for for public health practice. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be sitting in your office and thinking about this theory and then acting. A lot of times I think what we learn in undergrad or grad school or in our, you know, if we're somebody who's like a grassroots public health professional and in, in our life experience, 
um, those things just become innate within us. And we pull on this knowledge that, yes, like we were taught in class, but it, it's not something that we, we really, um, you know, it's not applied in the way that we think it is, but it's just so critical. Um, and so I wouldn't discount it. Definitely like learn it. Um, don't blow it off. Um, but know that there likely is value, even if it's the tiniest little bit. Does that make any sense at all? I don't even know. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's, that's really okay, good. Change management is an essential skill for public health and, uh, and most other fields. How can new professionals develop skills to manage change effectively? Sure, yeah. So um, I sort of disagree a little bit with that statement. I think being able to be adaptive to change is an essential skill in public health. Whether or not you need to have specifically change management skills really depends on what you want to do in the field. If you're somebody that is happy kind of working in the background and you know being kind of mid-level um in your career like one that is perfectly okay i totally understand that because once you get advanced a little bit more like you don't get to do as much of the fun stuff so if you want to be somebody that just wants to do the fun stuff i would say you know what important things to know is that public health is a field that is ever evolving so being able to adapt to change is is just really, really critical. Um, we cannot move forward if we stay stagnant. Um, so, and so there are some aspects of change management and and all of that that whole idea of being able to morph an organization as as time changes, as technology changes, as political ideologies and and the view and cultures change. Like that's really, really critical. Um, and developing really good, clear communication skills, I think, is, is a really important aspect of that. Um, I can't tell you, just in, in the 10 years that I've been in, in my career, how many times lack of communication has caused issues within a team, between individuals, or within an entire organization. Um, so those aspects of change management, I would say, are critical for any public health practitioner. Whether or not you need to have like all of the change management skills really depends on what your career aspirations are. Well, thank you so much. And you bring up con uh, communication. And one thing that is really important for public health practitioners, and maybe this is just for, maybe for a change management, but also just in general, is the ability to persuasively communicate our results. How have you seen persuasive mm -hmm. communications as important to your career? I'm, it's definitely been a lot bigger component than I thought it would be. So I'm a trained epidemiologist. I thought I was just gonna go and like, crunch numbers and show people data and like change the world like maybe find a cure for hiv like i don't know um and that's definitely not where life has gone um but i think being able to demonstrate what your data says in a way that is relatable is really really important um and whether or not you think of that as persuasive communication is probably semantics um but you know, I, I was just at the National Association 
Association for City and County Health Officials Conference, where there was a, a general session, and this is, by the way, available on the NATO website. Um, it's the second general session, and it was about, it was titled, It's Not Them, It's Us. And it was all about how public health really is not great at marketing themselves and not really great at communicating to the general public. We're really good at like talking within our own circles and we've like, we've really developed this great echo chamber, which is really nice for our egos and makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, but we're not so great about communicating and, and uh, marketing ourselves to the public. So, Soledad O'Brien, who is like one of my favorite people in the world, um, sat on this panel and was talking about storytelling and how the story is in the details and how data, like we can't lead with data. We always want to lead with data, but we can't. And I really reflected on that. And the best way that I can think about it is we have our data and that's critical. And, but like our data is like the rice in a really good poke bowl dish, or maybe like your favorite curry dish. Um, it's there and it's, it's really important for the dish to come together. But like the yummy bits are the non-data parts. It's the personal story. It is the language that we use. It's the way to make things relatable. Do we reference pop culture? Do we, you know, can we find a way to tie in the other night's Bachelor in Paradise episode to something in public health that's going on? Being able to do that is really, is really an effective way to communicate whatever issue it is that we're working on. Yeah, and you have to do that in a way that's relatively organic, because I think we've all seen when either businesses or organizations try to right. co-opt the popular message and we see it go completely off the rails. Oh yeah, I mean, it's very obvious when somebody's trying too hard, right? Either individually or at an organization wide. Yeah, it's very, and, and the other thing is that story, like this storytelling and communicating well, that is a skill that can be learned, but that's also something like, if you are not good at it, that is okay work on it but like also be able to make sure like stay humble enough that if you realize that you are not the right person to communicate the message don't do it let somebody else who is either better or more appropriate do it like there is no sense in trying to muscle through something because the message is going to get lost and then whatever your goal is like you're just not going to be successful Great. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point at the end because often you hear, oh, if you don't know the skill, just just go and teach yourself it. But it's interesting to hear that piece of advice of we can collaborate. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's that's the part of that's the the value of being part of a team, right? Like everybody has their specific talents. Some people are better at some things than others, and so like let those people who are good at things shine. And like there's. There, I mean, communication and having humility are the two, probably the two most important skills anybody can ever bring to their job. Awesome. Thank you so much. And what advice do you have for students considering public health and students embarking on their careers? I think you've hit on a couple points of advice in the last couple of minutes, but were there other ones you want to highlight or anything you want to expand upon? Hmm. I'm... 
You know, I, I would say, you know, definitely, I'm sure all students have heard this before, like you don't get into public health for the money, right? Um, we get it, we get into it because we're these bleeding hearts that have a passion for social justice and improving the lives of the community. Um, and this is something that I need to work on. And so this is advice I want, I do want to give, because um, I need to hear it from myself as well. Uh, be careful of soapboxes. Um, it's really easy when you feel like you're coming from a good place and coming from the right place and you're doing something for the right reasons to get on a soapbox. When we're talking, go back, again, going back to communication, that's a really easy way to turn somebody off. Um, and also just, just be very, you know, really work on being aware of what the community that you are serving looks like. Whether, and that doesn't matter if you're in public health practice, or if you're going into research, so then when it's research, it's the community that you're trying to help. Um, be very conscious of, of what, that, what that community looks like, because that really will influence how you approach your work. Also have fun, like we, public health can be fun too, so enjoy it. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I definitely, public health, I'm, I'm new to it obviously, barely, mm -hmm. I haven't even graduated yet, but every day is something new and interesting in my study and I think that that's just the coolest mm -hmm. thing and it's the first time ever for me that I've found a field like that. Oh good, good, you're in the right field then. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one question I have, and you mentioned that you're a social epidemiologist, or you do social epidemiology, mm -hmm. is why is mm -hmm. racism still relevant to public health? Uh, uh, that's, you know, that's a funny question because um, I, I almost want to, if somebody were to ask me that, just in a, in a meeting, I would ask, why do you think it's not relevant to public health? Um, when, when we look at the data, and I'm sure Iowa City is no different, but in Kansas City, when we look at our data and we map it, we see the same pattern every single time. It is our same six or seven zip codes that are our zip codes with the highest proportion of blacks and people of color living in there um, and they all have worse outcomes and so when when we look at this data and this is Kansas City Chicago Twin Cities probably Iowa City the entire United States black people are getting sick and dying at a disproportionate rate than white people how can race not be a critical component of public health um, it just is. And that is something that is something that we created, right? We created that. And that was hundreds of years of creating these structures so that a certain group of people does not do as well as another group of people. Um, we have we have done that. And it is up to us to undo it. It's not up to them. It's not up to them over here or across the street or in uh, the urban areas, it's not up to them. It's, it's up to us. And it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. And it's a responsibility that I hope more and more public health practitioners can take very seriously. Great. Thank, uh, just, just 
with that, with the idea of communication, how would you change your mm -hmm. message when talking to non-public health practitioners? Or would you change your, your message to people who maybe might not be as well versed in the data um, of, of public health? Well, how, would you, how would that look for you? Sure. I, I don't think I would change the message based on profession. I would probably change my message based on um, whether, how comfortable I thought people were with talking about racism. So this is something that we are, we're working on it within our own health department. And there are some people who um, are very well aware of how racism and bias and the structures impact the health of the community and, and disadvantage people of color and advantage white people. And there are other people who don't quite get it yet. And so we, um, I say we, the two women that, that lead this initiative within the health department um, have done a really good job of taking different approaches. So we've done a lot of talking about all different types, types of advantages and disadvantages, whether they are race, sex, religion, um, you know, talking about how like we celebrate all of these Christian holidays that we get off from work and school, but like how many Jewish holidays do we get off from work, right? None, right? So that's like a religious advantage that many like Christians have. Um, so they've done a really good job about kind of taking this slower approach because we tried to take this one where like, okay, we're just going to sit down and have some honest conversations about race. That didn't work. Um, and so that was a, observing that was a really good lesson for me. So when I go out into a community and I talk about these issues, I have to be very aware of my audience and that, and I have to tailor my conversation depending on how comfortable people are or where people are at in that conversation, because it is a difficult conversation. Um, and it is something that has to be approached very thoughtfully. Well, thank you for that. Um, so mm -hmm. what can we do? So you've mentioned you go out, you talk to people in the community, but in general, what can we do about racism from the public health perspective? I mean, I would say the first step is acknowledging that race and racism factor into all aspects of health. And I mean, we, I, I, could, show, I could show you the data that that show this, um, whether we're looking at social economic status, right, income, education, gosh, I don't even know, um, geography, where people live, or any health outcomes, low birth weight, death, violent crime, I mean, all of this, it is the same, I want to swear, it is the same pattern. <laughs> Um, so just taking that first step to acknowledge it sounds really, really simple, but a lot of people have to get to that part first. And then I would say after that, like, don't be afraid to be very honest in what you're saying. So one of the things that frustrates me about how I was taught to talk about race in grad school was that I was taught as an epidemiologist, I just say, oh, well, blacks experience a disproportionate what whatever the outcome is right but it was never like blacks experience this and it's because of this racist policy that was probably put in like 100 years ago or whatever right so i think 
that is one thing that we need to get a little bit braver about in public health. Um, and I realize that some people listening to that might be really annoyed by the fact that I said that we have to be brave, but um, uh, full disclosure, I am a white woman. Um, so it, it does require a little bit of bravery um, and, and courage because you don't know for sure how on board people will be with you. Um, but yeah, we just, we have to get comfortable having these uncomfortable conversations. Um, and the other thing is I would just say also like, you know, recognize where your colleagues and where your stakeholders are at in the spectrum of being able to have this discussion. And I talked about that a little bit earlier. I have to look at the audience that I'm talking to and really understand where they are at and change my approach based on that. Um, and you know, depending on people's part, you know, perceptions, your conversation will go a little bit differently. Um, but man, just like that first step in acknowledging that like, this is the underlying thing and it's gonna take a long time to dismantle it, but just because it's gonna be, take a long time and be difficult, doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile endeavor. Well, thank you for that. If you were, if you got to spend like one minute with every public health professional who's about to graduate and you had to tell them <laughs> one thing uh, that they would that they would do to interpret data better when looking around racial issues what would you say oh gosh uh, there's so many things I don't know I feel like I'm still learning um, every day I, I learn something new and I really learn from my colleagues um, you know, I would say, like, know what your biases are, like that, that will help you. And that's not just like, that's not just when you're looking at like race, right? That's when you're looking at that anything, know what your biases are. If you really want to kind of go more in depth on the race, there is a great um, project out of Harvard called Project Implicit, you can take in um, implicit association test and that will like tell you where you are at with your biases with black people with Arab names with gay and lesbians um, it's a great test um, it's like one of those kind of like having a hum you have to have some humble moments with those tests um, but that's that's a really great place to start if you want to start addressing bias great thank you for that um, so one other question that I ask everyone um, is, what is one thing that you thought you knew, but later you realized you were wrong about? Oh, man, again, there's so many things. Um, since we've been talking a lot about race, I really, I really thought Right, I I knew what racism was, and I thought that I knew what was up. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like I'm a white woman. I was raised in rural Iowa, um, and so I didn't have a lot of experience with people who were not white or Christian. Um, and so I had a lot of biases that I didn't even realize existed. Um, and then I. I took this took this class and it was basically like how racism makes people sick and I my eyes were so open and I would just say 
um, it's, it was like a very humbling moment. Um, I had to like, I did a lot of self-reflection after that um, and became very horrified by many things that had come out of my mouth before then. Um, but it's, it's been a really great thing. It's really driven a lot of my work. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably like the biggest like wake up call moment that I've had for my career. I was completely wrong. Uh, we, we on From the Front Row did a series this spring on why does place matter? And mm -hmm. so thinking about issues of geography, and I'm interested mm -hmm. to hear your perspective on how you think place matters in public health. Yeah, um, it absolutely matters. And, um, you know, granted, I, I take very much a city perspective because that is the jurisdiction that I serve. Um, we, we see all types of advantage and disadvantage dispersed by geography. Um, and we see that with like urban versus rural as well, right? Like we, I mean, I, I can't tell you sometimes how frustrating it is as a rural kid to see natural disasters and then see all of the funding and attention go to like the nearest big city that got hit, right? And then you think about like all of the other people that aren't getting hardly anything and cognitively understand it because there's only so much money to go around but it just it feels so unfair um it i wish it didn't matter so much um but it does and recognizing that and and knowing that resources are going to have to be used in a way that um creates the most equity or creates the least inequity um, is, is the most critical decision. And it's not always going to be fair. Um, I think also place matters because that's part of how we identify ourselves, right? Well, one of the first questions that we ask when we meet each other is like, we find out where people live, right? And like, we find out where people are from. That's it. And we don't, we don't say, oh, I'm from like, I mean, we always, we always identify ourselves as being from a geography. Um, and so I think just culturally, that's so relevant for us that it has to be relevant in our public health practice as well. That was like three different answers, but I stand by them all. What do you think we should do in context of place? Like what, what can we do to improve the situation that we have, that we see ourselves in front of? Um, man, I'm not sure I 100% know what we should do. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where in, in Kansas City, we are really trying to figure out a way to keep people where their home is, right? So in Kansas City, like that's very much a neighborhood thing, right? And in rural areas that might look a little bit different. Um, but we have some neighborhoods that are have severe disinvestment 
um, are severely distressed. And we are really trying to figure out a way to reinvest in those neighborhoods without causing a bunch of, without displacing the residents that already live there, right? Either through gentrification, so rich white people moving in, forcing everybody else out because they can't afford their homes anymore, um, or for or you know any other number of reasons. We have not figured out how to do that. Um, we've our new mayor has formed a, an affordable housing task force, so I'm I'm very hopeful. Um, but that's, that's really difficult, especially when you get into the weeds about like economics and development incentives and, and all of that. Um, so I, I do not have a good answer for you. Um, perhaps there is a public health student that would like for that to be their research project, and then they can tell me what the answer is. I would like that very much. <laughs> well, I will make sure that everybody who hears that will get to get <laughs> themselves working on that as much as I can, at least from this end. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm a million dollar and maybe a Nobel question because I think the person who's right. going to be a big, you know, is going to, you know, change change the field. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, moving on to our last question: If you had if time and resources weren't an issue what would you like to see happen in public health? Time and resources were not an issue. Oh man, I mean, I think every public health like person would run for office and then we would take over the world and make it a better place. Um, gosh, I, I mean, if we had all the resources in the world, I mean, can you imagine what we could do? We could, I, I mean, there would be no STD epidemics. There, there, you know, there would be, um, there, I mean, I wish we stopped spending so much money on the food code. I know it's important. So I'm not saying don't spend money. It's just a wish, okay? Nobody freak out. Um, gosh, I mean, I mean, honestly, I I would just I would love us to be better at policy. I think we're getting there. I think in the past ten or fifteen years, public health has really recognized that that's where the most sustainable long-term change would be. Um, and having like really good political advisors, people who are really well trained and passionate about policy, um, those people are not cheap, right? And, and public health really needs to be able to pay them in a way um, that can really help us get some work done. Um, gosh, I mean, and then like Medicare for all. How could I forget about that? Medicare for all. I was tapping the desk as I was saying that. Um, those two things. There we go. Made it. Finally answered your question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great. Well, this has been a very uh, interesting radio from, from my end, at least. And uh, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today. 
Special thanks to our guests and to members of our planning committee, Sonia Armbruster, Haley Boudreaux, Katie Brander, Ian Bukta, Maya Chilis, Stacy Coleman, Brandon Grimm, Suzanne Hawley, Abigail Menke, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, Lori Walkner, and Kristen Wilson for guidance in creating this series, and to the De Beaumont Foundation for creating the 40 Under 40 list and to connecting us to these impressive honorees. Funding for this podcast is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you want to hear more of either of the two podcasts that are collaborating today, you can find links to our shows in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. All right. Have a wonderful week, everybody.